and social reprobates. This is Reverend Norm welcoming you to another electrifying, stimulating, and totally off the wall sensational episode of Killed by Desk, the only show that answers the question that no one's asking, but to us misfit musicians, weirdo artists, and oddball scenester mainstays do to make a living. Prepare to have your minds completely and totally blown for the details you never thought you'd want to know. The ups, the downs, the conference calls gone wrong, the co-worker questions, the dress codes, and what they've learned and what they wish they hadn't, and if they're at all happy where they are and what they've become. From selling out to doubling down, let's talk punk rock business and what happens when the two get all mixed up. Here is your host, Bill Florio. Yo, this is Bill Florio. Yo, this is MC Charlie Boswell. Hey, it's Dave Harrison. Got Jerry Casale. Did I say it wrong? He's Italian. It's Casale. Yeah. Casale. Okay. Jerry Casale. We've got a lot of Italians on this podcast. A lot. And he, you, do you hear him talk about his 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 father was from Brooklyn? I mean, like he's, we've got a lot of New York Italians. <laughs> that's Brooklyn. it. That's, that, that's where the creative, the real creative energy in this country comes from. Just well, someone should write that, that oh, book. That's true. That would be a really interesting book. That like you know the arts and entertainment has been shaped by New York Italians. <laughs> I, I, there's a thing. I think it's it's not just Italians. It's New York Jews. No, New York food. No, f- I think food culture has been shaped by New York Jews and yes. arts so and entertainment. So freaking been- the entertainment. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you ever this heard of Tim Pat Alley? <laughs> well, no, but I think I think the Italian piece though is if you're gonna like do something like grow grapes and bottle wine, like that's that's a that's a you know an Italian thing. I'm gonna do this, and it's like, and I'm gonna go. I'm gonna starve doing it. <laughs> Right. When I was living in Astoria, my landlord's father was 95, half blind. He was like climbing up the ladder to, to the trellises to pick his grapes and his olives. To you know, he was making his his olive oil and his wine every year. My neighbor had freaking uh, the freaking the uh, eggplants, zucchinis, and stuff growing on the freaking uh, power lines over here. Oh, went, <laughs> she planted it by the tree, and it went right up the tree, and it went onto the lines. Pretty roasted, bigger or smaller? With the <laughs> it was bigger. They were hanging. It must have helped it. It was like those ones on Gilligan's Island. It was like those ones on Gilligan's Island. You know, win the state fair with those zucchinis or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, you get a ticket for that, though. Yeah, but talk, talking <laughs> to Jerry, you know, it's like I, it, it's funny because we came in here not really knowing a lot, and I, I knew a big, lot. I well, used to, oh, no, yeah, you, I, I, I used to be a Devo fan. I love Devo. I'm just saying. I but, love Devo. Yeah, but like, you know, I love we, Devo. We, Jerry's our first, like, kind of big, big. But you know, when you get thrown out of a parking spot, it's similar. <laughs> <laughs> Top forty act, you know, and they're they're kind of like a living legend. And he's like, you know, like, do you do you make a living off of this? He's like, hell no. <laughs> so, and that is it is it crazy. is really. It's really depressing. If Devo but it's also- can't make money, just put away your instruments and get a job. Seriously, I mean, yeah. What are you? What are you going to do? You're going to write a song as iconic as Whip It, and like you think you're going to make a living? No, off of it? I mean, how is that? Do you hear that all the time? It's huge. How I think. You, how I can think that by there, itself not make you a living? There's like a Muzak version, you know, like I know, but it's like something <laughs> like that. That's a big part of the culture. It should be enough right there. Well, here are the things that I mean. Here are the things that I think we gave Jerry a lot of good ideas. The parking, the parking lots was one. <laughs> 
the Jihad Jerry, his side project. I think that should be a touring thing at city wineries because there are ones around the, around the country and he could serve. I didn't know that. That's a chain. Yeah, it's a chain. And now it is. It started, it started in New York, but there's a whole bunch of them. So he could go. There's one in LA. There's. I know that because my daughter was saying some band was playing city winery and she wanted to go and then it turned out it was in Chicago or some shit. Every major city now. So I mean, I think that's a perfect way to showcase his wines and music. Yeah, exactly. It's perfect. It's, it's like, it's like if you were like playing at Trader Joe's or something. No, who's the guy that get yelled at about the freaking parking space mikey erg mikey erg yeah i feel like mikey erg after that podcast (laughs) you just don't like the politics charlie you just need to not take it so seriously i'm not taking it seriously i just uh, (laughs) yeah i just i'm not the one take oh everybody accusing me of being so serious <laughs> Charlie, you're so serious. Why don't you take a tell a joke once in a while? <laughs> I love it. Well, I had a lot of fun, and I know, know this I is was, great. Yeah, I love it. I mean, and we're dedicating this one to Mike Erg. Erg, <laughs> this one's for you. I know you're going to listen to it the second it comes out. <laughs> you have to. You'll have to like you know put Stern on hold if he's not on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's roll the tape. So, Jerry, we really start this out. Could you introduce yourself and tell everyone what you do for a living? <laughs> yeah. My name is Gerald Casali. I'm uh, founder of Devo. And uh, what do I do for a living at this point? Uh, I guess I, um, I wait for permission to do things and beg for money to do things. <laughs> <laughs> So usually we start, you know, we'll start with what you're working on now. Um, but I want to go back and start with something that you've, you've spoken a lot about in interviews and I don't want to, I don't want to mine the same area, but just for our, for our listeners, you were at Kent state when the killings happened, wanted to understand a little bit about what career path you were on before that defining moment and maybe what changed in your thinking afterwards. Yeah, that was my senior year in undergrad school at Kent State University. And I had at that point been pursuing a double major because I I got a scholarship to go to school or I couldn't have gone to school because I grew up blue collar and my parents had no money and they didn't think kids should go to college. You know, they were working class and they thought it was a waste of time and weird. And um, so I, I got a scholarship as a journalist and my major was a comparative literature, 20th century comparative literature. So I was pursuing a, you know, a BA degree and somewhere in my sophomore year, because I'd always been drawing and making music, I added studio art. And so I was also doing a BFA program. So I had like these 16 hour course loads, you know, it was insane. And uh, that's, that's what I'd done. Uh, so I was in my senior year and I'd become very politicized because of the Vietnam War and because of the right word, right wing swing of the country, uh, something <laughs> that's very current. And we had Nixon and we had the expansion of the war in Cambodia from Vietnam without an act of Congress. And that's what that protest was about, May 4th. And I was already a member of uh, Students for a Democratic Society because Mark Rudd had come to campus from Columbia University and recruited for a local chapter there at Kent State. I was about, I don't know, 20 feet from, from uh, Jeffrey Miller when he got plugged in the head, and I knew him. And um, I was about maybe 30 feet 
from Allison Krauss, who got shot down by the student teacher parking lot behind me. And uh, it changed my life. That, that day was uh, definitely the day um, I took the red pill, as they say. And I was no more Mr. Nice Guy. And I probably had a nervous breakdown, but, you know, nobody talked about that kind of thing then. And certainly if you were a man, you, you, you had no one to talk to about that. And that was it. I mean, you find out everything you've been told is a, a big farce and a lie. And there's, you know, the brand of America and freedom. And then there's reality. You know, it's like when you find out how we slaughtered all the Native Americans, <laughs> all the fine white people that came here. I thought you were going to say when you found out Santa Claus didn't exist. <laughs> yeah. Or as, or as Captain Beefheart saying, there ain't no Santa Claus on the evening stage. <laughs> so what would your path, I mean, I know it's hard to to imagine and, and look back with that hindsight, but do you think that you would have gone on to a more conventional career path had you not been present or had your involvement yeah. with the SDS already kind yeah. of radicalized you in that sense? Yeah, I think I, you know, what I was headed for was to become a, um, a professor. I was, I, I thought I was going to be teaching studio art. And that's probably what I would have done. When you look at the ideas that formed into what eventually became Devo, was that something that, you know, I, I was actually just listening um, earlier today. You have that wonderful interview where you interview yourself. And uh, one of the things that you said was that Devo was more, and I'm paraphrasing here and let me know if I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, that Devo was more a big idea than a band, or at least that was your initial idea for it. How much of that was a, was a reaction to to what you experienced, but then also what you saw your new career path being? Was that going to be where you were going to make your mark from a career perspective? I think it was a creative response to trauma. In that senior year, I had already um, been reaching out for graduate school to several colleges, and I had applied to Ann Arbor, University of Ann Arbor, Michigan, for my graduate work and got accepted. But because I was a member of SDS, after the killings at Kent State, the governors of Ohio and Pennsylvania and Michigan and I think Indiana, who were all big time right wing creeps. I mean, we had Governor Rhodes, uh, who was glad the students got shot and had said to colleagues, more of them should have died. They, they made a pact that all that, that this was all because of uh, outside agitators. So if you were an out of state student, had been a member of a, quote, anti-war or radical group, you lost your, you know, scholarships, you got de-admitted. So suddenly the University of Ann Arbor was sending me a letter saying, basically, stay home. So I went back to Kent State with my tail between my legs and uh, had started graduate school there. And that was a big stroke of luck, as it turned out, because... In the wake of uh, the killings at Kent State, you know, there was a sea change in the culture like overnight. And of course, protesting went pretty much away or it went totally radical like the weathermen. In other words, you, you either were going to start hiding out and packing heat and maybe dying for this cause or you were going to go home and cut your hair and work for your dad. And I got to meet all these professors who came on these kind of work study programs as a visiting professor 
from Berkeley, from King's College in England. And they were amazing people like this guy, Eric Mottram, and this poet, Professor Ed Dorn, who had been a member of the Black Mountain School and, you know, friends with Ginsburg. So suddenly, you know, this little clique of intellectuals and, and artists that were, you know, the, the disenfranchised outcasts at Kent State University, including myself, we all gravitated towards these guys and they loved us. And, you know, they, we were hanging out with them. Uh, they, you know, we were in their classes. We would socialize with them at night in their, you know, rented houses uh, off campus. And, uh, and they'd say, read this, look at this, blah, blah, blah. And, and they were feeding my friend and I, uh, this poet, Bob Lewis, all this kind of content that, that just bolstered these um, nascent ideas we had that we started calling de-evolution. And they found us very humorous and very entertaining and very strident. You know, we were like little monkeys that just discovered the wheel, you know. And, <laughs> and for these guys, you know, they'd been through it already. They'd had the red pill and they and it was nothing new to them. And they were from the beats. You know, they were kind of like beatniks and um, really cool people. So it's, it's then and there that these between 1970 and 73, that the kind of alternate worldview that became known as de-evolution that started as an art movement, you know, due to me, it was art devo. Uh, it, it's, that it became my life. It became my creative response. I knew what I was going to do. I knew what I had to do. I knew this was the only way to go because it was either that or just, you know, cave in, in this depressing way where you kind of, What's the word? You kind of resign yourself to like being socialized and having a job, right? That wasn't going to happen. I, I just couldn't do it. I had no choice. And I'm, that's when I met Mark in, during that period. And, uh, and I started talking to him about the evolution in Art Devo. And of course, he was, he was there. You know, he, he ate it up and he got it. And his art, I thought his art fit the Devo profile. And we both played music, so we started talking about what's the musical application of Devo? What would Devo music sound like? And that's how it all started. And we agreed that we agreed on pursuing that. Like, okay, if it sounds like anything else, if it sounds like a genre, if it sounds like it's on the radio already, we stop. We don't do anything that sounds like anything you've heard. So what did your parents think about it during this time period? Did you, did you explain it to them? Were they like, oh, you know, Jerry's going through a tough time? Or, or were they like, what the heck is happening to our son? Well, I had already been estranged from my parents. I mean, I, uh, of course, you know, when I was in high school, I immediately latched on to Bob Dylan, you know, the yard where I was uh, kicked out of school and forbid to graduate in person. I got my diploma in the mail because I wouldn't cut my hair. <laughs> wow. And it was about as long as Brian Jones. It was like a, it looked like Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, you know, that, and, uh, and frankly, all the, all the Ivy League kids already had these Princeton's haircuts that were pretty much beetle cuts anyway. And that was, <laughs> that was okay if you were a Brahmin white kid uh, in the, in the Ivy League, but it didn't fly in the Midwest. And my parent, my dad was embarrassed, you know, to have me as a son. And, uh, I, I got kicked out of my house. So I, I lived uh, in Kent with a friend of mine. 
whose parents were more reasonable and had given him an apartment over their shoe store. <laughs> so I lived there. And so, by the, you know, they were hearing about me and I didn't really talk to them because, you know, they, they, they were staunch Catholics, conservative, you know, believed in the authority of the Catholic church and, uh, you know, were thought that the Vietnam war was, uh, uh, you know, a legitimate war. I mean, my poor father, I mean, come on, he fought world war two. It was a real war. And, uh, you know, he, he was wounded. He had a purple heart. He went in, into service when he was 18 years old. He was orphaned in Brooklyn, you know, and lived with foster parents before that. And, uh, his reality just couldn't, he couldn't digest hippies and acid and pot and, you know, protest against the Vietnam War. You can imagine what a surreal horror show it must have been for him to look at this. They, they totally didn't understand the culture, cultural explosion that, you know, basically drew a line in the sand between that madman reality that you saw on the series Mad Men, and then this new reality that the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan kicked in and Timothy Leary and Acid. So anyway, that was that. Was that. I don't know what they thought. They, they had already thought that I was a lost cause and they were very, you know, disapproving on every level. Did, did Devo have a plan? Was it like, all right, we're going to do this for so many years and see how it soaks out or you know it's like are we going to make this a theater company if the music thing doesn't work out after four years or something like that yeah um it was it was never it was it was never put in those terms or discussed in that manner but what we did do on purpose and what we thought we were going to do that was separate from trying to be a band on a record label because that was not our intention was we had been true believers of the, the, the laser disc um, <laughs> revolution. I know. We had been reading the catalogs and magazines and said, this is it. This is the future. Laser discs. And it sure looked like it was going to be right then and there in 1974. So we thought we were going to be like uh, music-driven Three Stooges, where we were going to, like, every year put out a laser disc with a, um, a series of film shorts with a narrative, each one driven by a song. And that's what we were going to do. It wasn't a band. It was like, I guess it would have been more like Monty Python, except not intentionally comedic, although there was the political commentary and the satire element. It was always an audiovisual multimedia uh, concept and a goal. And we, you know, because realities in the culture and because capitalism screwed the pooch on laser discs because they created three competing formats, technologies, like you had your pioneer one and your RCEA one and some other one. And, and each of them had their own catalogs and each of them played differently. One even had a needle. One well, even they they did that with records first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wasn't new. Yeah. yeah, there you go. But it was, it was expensive and really limited, you know, so people got turned off. Like, I'm not going to fucking buy this thing for $300. And then it has a catalog of 50 laser discs and, and the next guy buys the next machine. And he's got a catalog of 70 titles and they're incompatible. 
it, it became a joke. And so what, what that left us with was uh, being lumped into punk and new wave because of when we surfaced. And that left us then with being, you know, checked out by A&R men from various labels. If you were to actually be that 1970s multimedia pioneer, did you imagine there was a way to get the laser discs out without the record labels or the television production studios? No. I just wonder if there's a difference. <laughs> no, we didn't know enough. Uh, okay. And we, and we certainly weren't in contact with those who maybe would know. And I do question if anybody would have understood the vision and said, oh, you can do this. They just thought, these guys are crazy. They are stupid. You know, shut up and play. <laughs> you know, like, just, just shut up and play, Devo. You know, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know? So we were reduced to being a band on a label in our minds. You know, in most people's minds, we were damn lucky to get signed. You're only 40 years ahead of your time. That was that was the problem. <laughs> that is true. I mean, everyone talks about these social media influencers and they're like, you know, you have to be your own personal brand and you have to do this and that. And it's like, it sounds like that's kind of what you all were doing way ahead of your time. And certainly it was part art movement, part kind of religious movement to a certain extent. I mean, I, especially counting myself as among your fans. I mean, I've seen people that scare the crap out of me at shows. At the last show, we were like, eh, we're going to stand in the back. <laughs> I mean, you yeah, you hit on something there. I mean, honest to God, quite seriously, I wish I'd started the Church of Devolution back then and made it a legal church. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. I think that would have been a good idea. So, so Elrond was, was way ahead of you then. <laughs> it was an art movie. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, and, and I wrote all the copy, you know, created all the ridiculous marketing slogans. And, and uh, you know, we created these characters and I wrote all the copy for General Boy. I directed the videos. Mark and I did all the graphics and uh, I did the stage shows and the costumes. So, yeah, it was a do it yourself. It was total DIY. And there is that world. I mean, there is that world that you all created. You watch the videos, you watch all of that. I mean, there is people can, people can live in that world. And a lot of people do, you know, there is the, there are those people that really, you know, well, now embrace we all live in that world. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, well, you know, this may look like the same planet, but I'm not kidding when I say that something happened around the pandemic time once and for all that it's like we went, you know, the astrophysicists that posit parallel universes that are like a teardrop where each universe is a teardrop out of that universe into the next one. There's a multiverse. I do think we went through a wormhole into an alternate reality nightmare universe. And it's a twisted version of the one we all think we're living in and the one we remember, like if you start even 30 years ago, what, what you look at today may look like the same place, uh, but it isn't. It's a twisted simulation and everything's upside down. And what applied 30 years ago is absolutely gone now. Absolutely gone. It's like the way you keep watching Trump thumb his nose at the rule of law and make a joke of it. And it's completely toothless. And there is no checks and balances and nobody can touch him. You know, he's like the Teflon Don, right? And that's just one example of the way everything works. It was like, you know, Khashoggi and Bin Salman. And you could just keep going here, you know, for hours. It's, uh, it's over, folks. De-evolution's real. 
So it would have been really easy to make Devo into something that was so filled with just pure rage. Was it your art background? Like, was it a conscious decision to add humor elements and to not make it this one note reaction? Was sure. that something that was spoken about or was it something that you just kind sure. of chanced I, I mean, I, I saw on your like Wikipedia page, it says you were kicked out of the band for suggesting commercial themes and things like that before. <laughs> I feel like you were on that path anyway. I had seen firsthand that protest and rebellion didn't work. Like that was obsolete in corporate feudal society. And that's exactly where we were. I called it that then. To me, it was like modern feudalism where the bridge, drawbridge goes up at night. Either you work for the king and you're in there, you're in the castle, or you're outside with the gnashing of teeth, you know, warming your hands by a a little bonfire. And, you know, it seemed like that then. But, of course, there was a real middle class then. And now it really is corporate feudalism where... There's the vast mob of poor and there's the billionaires club. And that's that. And people vote against their own interests because they're so self-loathing and they hate themselves so much. They go, well, billionaires shouldn't have to pay taxes. I agree with that. I mean, I'd like to not pay taxes. (laughs) It's, It's amazing. That's what's so fascinating to me. I mean, from a career perspective and from what you were able to do with Evo, it's not just the band itself, but I mean, it sounds like you mentioned it yourself, working within the system. I mean, you you were able to not only create videos for Devo, but it sounds like the the video work that you did for Devo led to work with other bands. You know, you were at the forefront oh, yeah, of, of, of music video luckily, creation. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's sure, not, you, you kind of implied by the dark tone that that wasn't easy, right? Once, once you're in there and you're on the label, it sounds like there was a struggle there. Go from, you know, like, you know, and like, and like, how do you think Devo approached that versus like, I don't know, a Blondie or someone like that? Well, I don't think Blondie was ever trying to be. Do you think you were more prepared to deal with, you know, the big record company and, uh, you know, eventually MTV and things like that, that others might not have had with them? Well, I mean, first of all, Bands like Blondie were not trying to be subversive. They were, they wanted in to begin with. We were being very subversive for real. Like we knew what we were trying to do and we knew what we were about. And we were trying to figure out a way to make that palatable enough to get past the gatekeepers to an audience because audiences loved us. It was the people in charge. It's always been the people in charge that stop you the middle people. We knew that, you know, that out and out rebellion was a joke. Uh, and like I said, it doesn't work. We had to be subversive. And that did involve satire and humor. And, it, it, and in the beginning, we were two steps ahead. So it was working. It was working. Want to rep your favorite podcast? We don't have any of their merch. But if you're liking Killed by Desk, visit our website for T-shirts, coffee mugs, hoodies, and a whole lot more. Just go to killbydesk.com, see what we got. Don't forget, we cut all of Charlie's jokes out of the episode. You need to buy the full version. Yeah, and go rep your podcast. Seeing your most recent tour and seeing the, the new video at the end with the record label executive and all of the, you know, I mean, and then that kind of look back on it. Is it something that you can look back on now and say, we worked within the system to create art that we wanted to create? Or do you still feel like that stifled you from what you ultimately wanted to create? Laser discs not mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think, you know, I think we I think we did as good as we could as long as we could uh, on a certain level. 
And we did, you know, what we put out there, the body of work we put out there is the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there should have been a Debo movie. There should have been a Debo musical. And if it, of course, if it had been up to me, that those things would have happened. And Debo could be like a blue man group where there's more than one Debo out there. We could go back and find kids in their 20s and train them to play our songs and, and put a stage show and a musical together and send them out. I love that idea. I mean, that was like, that seemed like that was the idea for the Devo 2.0, right? That was. Passing the mantle on and, and continuing the, the process with, with new people. That was the idea. Yeah. That was putting a little, a little feeler out there for, you know, we had to like appeal to Disney's set of moralistic rules and they wanted, you know, something to go out to like eight to 13 year olds. That's what they wanted. So they and, didn't get um, it at all. <laughs> they didn't. They totally didn't. As a matter of fact, a, a great story there is that they didn't pay any attention on the run-up at all. You know, I, they didn't really have an idea of what they wanted Devo to do. They just said, we want you to do something. Can you come up with an idea? Oh, so the they, they approached you. This was, there wasn't a pitch involved? Like they approached you and said, yeah. we want something? No, no. They just said... We want you to repurpose Devo songs for this group of kids on this channel. Okay. Come up with something. And they showed us something they'd done with They Might Be Giants, right? Right, right, right. Uh, And this guy that ran Hollywood Records, you know, he seemed very enthusiastic and very articulate. So uh, I came up with this idea of Devo 2.0, where uh, we would basically cast for a band of kids who could really play. And that we, I'd teach them the songs and that we would take them over to Mark's studio, Mutato Musica, and record them. And then uh, I would shoot background plates for them uh, video-wise that kind of corresponded to the way Devo stood in front of video screens for Oh No, It's Devo and had stuff going on behind us in sync with the songs. And they liked all that. So they let me go and they didn't pay any attention to the process. So you didn't get, so when, you didn't get more notes as you came that were like, irritate you. Like they just like no, said, okay, you got the green came, light. <laughs> nope. The notes only came when all the money had been spent. And all the <laughs> had done because we couldn't even get their attention. So the guy from Hollywood records took, took, you know, a finished edit over to some Disney execs. And that's when we got the notes and they were the greatest notes. <laughs> First of all, they just wanted to get rid of uncontrollable urge altogether. <laughs> and we go, why is that? And the notes were, well, because we know what you're talking about. It's an uncontrollable <laughs> urge. Think of the audience here, Debo. And I go, but I said, and I get, I get, finally get a phone call with them. Yeah. And that was even better. And I go, uh, well, it's, it's, it's not defined. It's, we never say what the uncontrollable urge is. And they go, that's exactly the problem. It <laughs> is undefined. And that means it could be sex. What song do they think you're going to use? No, listen. The guy from Hollywood Records picked the songs. <laughs> that's how it started. We didn't even pick the song. So, so I go, well, then how could we define it? And they go, well, change some of the lyrics. Make it about something that's not sex. <laughs> and I go, like, what? And they said, make it about junk food. That, that's that's, that's better too for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't, that Isn't that perfect? So I wrote, I wrote, before dinner, after lunch, 
I get a snack attack and I need to munch. <laughs> okay. And he's like, this is a 12 year old girl singing this. <laughs> and I think, God, this is really filthy now. <laughs> and they go, that's great. That's an interesting way to do it. Cause uh, you know, some people would, would just fight them. Right. But it sounds like there's a pattern here. It's like, we're not here to fight them. We're here to like, Fool them. <laughs> I love the idea of you guys kind of turning it on its head because they thought you were this like, you know, they could lump you in with other like new wave band. They're like, oh, yeah, I remember Devo. They did Whip It. And like, they, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And like, it's like you guys could be as subversive as, as hell while getting your foot in the door because they knew you but didn't know. They didn't actually know what the band was. Right. Luckily, you know, a long time ago, I remember this uh, interview with Bob Dylan where they go, doesn't it? Doesn't it bother you that people don't know the meaning that you put in the song like a Rolling Stone? And he said, not at all. He goes, it wouldn't be a hit if they knew. <laughs> I remember him saying that. And at the time I scratched my head. And as I got older, I totally understood it. And it's like they didn't. Most people didn't even know that Devo meant anything. And did, it was a contraction of de-evolution. They didn't know that, you know. And they didn't even know that. And so, yes, all they thought was Devo was this, you know, caffeinated, perky, new wave band. Well, I mean, when, when, when Disney's coming to pitch you something, you know, the, there's like, okay, well, there's, there's, there could be a paycheck in here too, right? But, it, but it might, we might be able to make this work. Are there other projects that you are kind of like pitching on the opposite side, like, hey, how do we get this approved? And like, how do we sell this idea and make it happen the other way? Does, does it work that way too with some of these things? Well, yeah, I tried for years to pitch the Devo musical. You know, I, I wrote a like a 40 page, you know, basically almost like a, a script. You know, I'd never, I'd written scripts, actual movie scripts, but I hadn't written a musical script. So I never put it in a final form because I could never even, when I got my foot in the door and pitched it, then <laughs> that usually was the last foot I'd get in a door. Um, <laughs> there were, you know, there were a number of things like that. I mean, I tried for a number of years to, to uh, make a movie about the original um, RB2000 rocket pack, the, the backpack that flew for about 30 seconds high in the air, you know, strapped. Guys would strap it off, basically become a rocket man. Because there's a great true life story of the guys that took one from the Bell Laboratories with a scheme, get money, get rich quick scheme. <laughs> that they were going to like um, do exhibitions at baseball games and football games and basketball games. And uh, it all goes wrong and they all betray each other. <laughs> and one guy ends up murdering one of the other two. It's a uh, it's a very it's a very Cohen Brothers kind of yeah. I'm surprised they haven't made that. I mean, they they made the made the Bob Crane movie. Oh yeah, they did a bad <laughs> job on that though. They did a. I wanted to like that movie, and it was not well done. <laughs> <laughs> so that that sounds like you're a Bob Crane fan. <laughs> well, and Willem Dafoe is great in it. Though. He, oh, with the watch, the little watch yes, he has. The, the it's watch fuck time. Pretty damn good. <laughs> I'm just saying these these sound like you know especially that one that sounds like I'm really surprised it didn't happen. They're they're gonna make a movie about the um the guy who sold the goat goat glands mm -hmm. starring uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh Robert Downey Jr. I think 
Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I, I feel like you keep keep rolling that one out. I think it's eventually going to get hit. <laughs> and I and I got to tell you too. I got to tell you too, Jerry. I, I feel like there's there's been like I think at one point there were three different Billy Joel Broadway musicals in the works. And if that guy can get three musicals, I'm sure there can be a Devo one. <laughs> I mean, please, Devo, I have some faith left in the world. Devo's tailor made for a musical. I mean, you know, because this wasn't some whatever they call it a jukebox musical. It wasn't a career Devo story. It was um, what you'd expect from this world we created with these characters. It's a complete, like, kind of sci-fi satire that was set in the near future, you know, with and, and, and the character General Boy is in it, Boogie Boy is in it, uh, Floyd and Boyd Kalimba, these characters, these other characters we made. Um, Rod Ruder, of course, uh, big media, you know, the, the nefarious mogul, mogul of the uh, content mat- uh, monopoly. It was. It's a great story, and it had an actual pandemic disease in it. That, but it's not. Um, it doesn't kill you. It just turns you into a gelatinous mass, and then you need all these products from universal health systems to survive. So, <laughs> so not that much of an exaggeration at this point. Not at all. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was the way the AMA and Big Pharma work. You know, but it was. I started. I wrote this original treatment exactly 40 years ago now uh, that's how on and off long i was trying to do that but then you know it's like obviously we all know mark became only interested in scoring films and put devo on nice wasn't interested in collaborating writing songs said no to all these lucrative show offers and that's when i started directing a lot of videos for other bands you know and uh that career was going pretty well. And because finally the, uh, the, you know, the ad world recognized finally video directors as real directors and artists, then I started getting requests to direct TV commercials. And but d- didn't you direct that Honda commercial that Devo was in? No, no. Oh, okay. You didn't. I, I wasn't allowed to. I wanted right. to. I, I helped <laughs> come up with that idea. But, you know, back then there was a real divide between the music world and the ad world. There were, right. they, and nobody was licensing rock songs for, uh, you know, for tons of money for commercials and films, by the way. That wasn't happening. So, yeah, it, it, it kind of was a, a lucky thing because now I had, you know, you're talking about what do you do to pay the bills? Now I had a way to actually make an income, even though Mark had, you know, stymied Devo. It wasn't hard to get a band to c- convince a band to have you do their music video. It sounds like, though, not no, not at that point. You know, because a lot of bands had a lot of grunge bands had a distrust in music videos. It was very funny. They, you know, the period they grew up in, they looked at it askance, like that's bullshit. That's not real. You know, your music videos are, you know, that's a sellout. And um, they they let they let their guard down with me because. They liked Devo and thought, okay, this is a guy that's been through it. He's not going to make us look stupid. You know, he's not going to ask us to do embarrassing things. And you have to write. Well, the well not more embarrassing than Devo would do themselves. <laughs> right. Well, exactly. But we did it, we did it to ourselves. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's that. You already got that out of your system. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nobody was telling us what to do to look foolish. We knew how to look foolish. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I always think about in the movie Tapeheads when they use Baby Doll, but they have the Swedish band and they're like throwing all the stuff at them for the video. And they're like dumping the water on them and everything to try and make it look cool. And they're just getting pissed off. It does seem like that was what videos were like for a really long time. And 
then some of the videos that you did, I mean, you did the I'll stick around video for Foo Fighters. Yeah. You started doing videos that actually weren't that afterthought kind of, kind of video as well. I mean, they, they weren't trying to create a whole story, but there, it was more than just watching the band play. That's really interesting that there was an artistic element, but it didn't seem contrived or pretentious. That video could have been three times better, but of course, the Foo Fighters were four hours late to the soundstage. <laughs> uh, that really cut down the shot list, believe me. That, three-dimensional CGI virus that chases them around is really the AIDS virus. That's like under a mic electron microscope. That's exactly what the AIDS virus looked like. So that's what the CGI artist modeled it on. And I knew that song was really about Courtney Love. So, and she really always vexed me and bothered me. <laughs> I personified her as is the AIDS virus menacing, <laughs> menacing the band? You know, she seems so toxic to me. <laughs> I was not a fan. So, even though you're working within the system now, you're creating commercials and, and, and doing all this, and you've you've moved to California and you've gotten into wine and, and all of that. I mean, how much of that? Did you look at and go, I'm absorbing what I was against? Or were you like, I'm going to make this my own? Was there was there a conscious process to that as you got into the kind of commercial side of the entertainment industry and kind of the, the hobbies that go along with it? Well, I knew that directing videos for other bands and shooting uh, TV spots was uh, what I consider secondary creativity because people are coming to you to solve their problems. Devo is something where you started it. You make up something from the beginning, just like Jimi Hendrix did, right? Like nobody said they wanted this or nobody said, can you write a song like this, Jimmy? You know, it's like <laughs> you do something that nobody even knows they wanted until they hear it. Maybe even when they hear it, they don't want it. But it's primary creativity. It's not problem solving. But directing videos for other bands and directing TV commercials was creative, but on a, but on a secondary level of problem solving and kind of collaborating with commercial forces. There's clearly a upfront, practical, almost cynical commercial goal. And you, and you get notes. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, man. I know. They should just get rid of the word director. Um, you're not directing. <laughs> I mean, you have one take, and now you're called over to Video Village, where the client and the ad agency hang out, or in the case of the bands, the video commissioner, the manager, the girlfriends, whatever, they're all there after one take. And boy, you get loaded with quote notes and they are completely off the wall, pinheaded to the point where you you can't even believe what's happening. You know, it's a joke. You know, nobody warned me about it. Yeah, no, I was like, you didn't have any experience to like lead up to how to, I wish I how was to get ahead of that. Sounds like. I, Man, I wish somebody had pulled me aside and said, here's the way it really works, Jerry. You're not really the director. Don't get that in your head. You know, here's what's going to happen. It would have been nice. Nobody did. Not, not one person. Not my own production company that I know. Not the people that supposedly had my back. They never told me anything. Uh, it was just like, just get in there. You know, it's like, throw the kid in the water. See if he can swim. Uh, <laughs> And then, and of course, the wine was a passion. And, you know, I'm so bad at 
making money on purpose. I'm really bad at it. <laughs> wine is the way you can lose the money you made in other pursuits. That's like what if, I thought. I was like, wine's like buying a boat, right? Or, like or, or racehorses. It's leaking immediately. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, wine's like a boat with holes in the bow. Yeah. <laughs> You're right about that. And, uh, you know, uh, dumb me, I didn't get it, but if you think it's terrible to be a musician where you're the last person to ever make money off the songs you write, try getting in the wine business and making wine, thinking you're going to make some money from the wine you made. Uh, <laughs> boy. I wanted to see if you like figured that out. Cause you know, like everything I've read kind of things, I've talked to people who, you know, kind of make cheese or candy or whatever. And it's always like they do it for some reason that's irrational almost not because it's a business or anything like it's like i gotta keep doing this otherwise you know i did it's it not gonna I be loved, there anymore <laughs> i know I, I did it because i loved wine and and had a passion for wine that began you know in college and then of course when debo got signed to a record label i had money to buy wine suddenly and i went from just a consumer to a person that learned all about it to a person who hung out with people that owned vineyards and made wine at the same time met all the restaurateurs that created what became the food revolution that started in california and san francisco and la in the late 70s and so it was a whole you know it's a whole piece of my life with those people that are my friends and for you know suddenly in 2012 i had the opportunity to actually go into business making wine because i got some funds from a uh, from a restoration architect with deep pockets and uh and i'm trying hard but you know I, i'm a fledgling brand i make a low production like four or five hundred cases a year and i'm trying to be discovered on a marketing level because marketing's the end all be all of everything you know and people when it comes to wine just like with films and in art People don't even know what they like or why they're supposed to like anything. You know, 99% of the people that buy wine or just buy it because somebody told them that brand is good. So they believe it's good. Or they but like they the never... label. They like the label and the price is right. Like the I label, mean, I... They like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I wish, you know, I wish we, I wish we knew like a marketing person who's specialized in liquor. <laughs> for, for, full, so full, full disclosure, Jerry, I work in PR and marketing and, and I've worked with a lot of different wine brands. A lot of it though is what price point you decide to come in on, you know? And, and you're also, I mean, you're doing a Bordeaux now, but I mean, but doing Pinot, I mean, it's, it's going to be trickier that way. That's, yeah. that's going to be a challenge yeah. as well. It'd be like if I could get it in front of, uh, of, um, oh God, the basketball player, this is with the Lakers now that oh, came LeBron? From Cleveland. LeBron, who's a real wine drinker. If I could get my 50 by 50 Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir in front of him, because I hear he likes Pinot, you know, my world would change. If he went, I love this 50 by 50, that'd be it. It's over. You'd be sold out for the next three vintages. And that's how it works. I mean, it really is. What's amazing to me is, I mean, you know how to do that. That's what you do. That's what you did with Devo. I mean, that, that's it's all about the story. And, and we talk. It's a double-edged sword. The, the people that taste my wine and really like it and see that it's real and it's quality. But because a bunch of hairband subhuman guys slap their band's logo on some rot gut bulk red yeah. wine at one point, <laughs> they both, you know, the, the snobs, you know, once again, those gatekeepers between the public and the winemaker, they, they look down on anybody that any actor, any musician, you know, any artist that started making wine. 
Yeah, they want you to take your energy dome and go work on stay in your lane. Don't try and get into into what they do. Yeah, I mean, I saw Puff Daddy's uh, backstage room. He has the Chirac and the Mott's applesauce. <laughs> <laughs> That's on his rider. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. When you look at consumers, you know some of the brands that have done that really well in the spirits in the spirits realm. For instance, speaking of George Clooney, he does um, Casamigos, the tequila. He sure does. Yeah. No one knows it's his, and that's the benefit because they, if they thought it was George Clooney's tequila, they wouldn't buy it. But they know that it's a quality product that gets, you know, it gets good ratings, which we all know are pay to play anyway. And people buy the story, especially with wine. I feel like the thing that we always, you know, we always talk about is people pick the bottle that they know enough about that when they bring it to a party, they can put it down and say, Hey, did you know, you know, the grapes here are made by this, you know, it's old, it's old vine grafted, whatever the case may be. You know, there's, there's that story that they can tell when they put it down and it, it makes them the hero of the night. And that's really, you know, that's what, that's what the marketing needs to do other than tell people where to buy it. Because I mean, when you're, when you're at a smaller level of production, it's, it's either they're going to go out of their way to find it, or they're going to encounter it randomly and you're going to have to stand out that way. Right. That's right. Because until you get to about 5,000 case production, you know, you're not even in the game. From a marketing standpoint, if you believe in the juice and you believe that, you know, when people taste it, they're, you know, they're going to love it, then it's just getting them to that point. You know, it's how do you get them to, to search you out and to experience the brand? Oh, this is very high quality fruit. It's only two clones of Pinot Noir, 667 Dijon and, and Pomard, and I blend them. And, uh, uh, they, it spends 14 months on uh, a combination of neutral oak and new French oak, Michel Ferrer barrel, barrels. Really, it's really seriously made and very little manipulation. You know, I, it's more French style where it's not, you know, there's still the terroir. The balance between the acid and fruit is there. It's not over oaked. It's, it's beautiful with food. And yeah, I... I totally stand behind it. There's nobody that tastes it that goes, oh, this is shitty. You know, nobody. And is there still, and there's still a dream to do Bordeaux style as well? Are you still looking yeah. at, at doing that? Yeah. With a big hit of Cabernet Franc in it too. Oh, I love Cab Franc. I, I loved Cab Franc. <laughs> How much are you involved in the actual wine production? Or are you just that guy giving the notes? I work hand in hand with an enologist, uh, Eric Lyman, Napa. I'm pretty hands-on because I, I had to be, you know, it's like, just like, Devo was do it yourself. We weren't going to let somebody dress us and put us on stage. You know, we weren't going to let somebody else say, here's your record cover, guys. I, <laughs> I mean, I know what I was going for, and I know my limitations technically on how to go for that. And I know that I couldn't have done that without collaboration. I have a question about um, Matado Mazika. I am think I'm pronouncing that wrong. Matado Mazika? Matado Mazika. Yeah, I'm gonna, uh, yeah. So, so uh, Devo still pra- yeah, Devo still practices there. Uh, when we just just now, when we did these uh, last three shows, uh, we did we did practice at Nutato. I mean, do you ever rent it out for other projects that you're doing, or do you find a better rate somewhere else? <laughs> well, no, Mark um, Mark occupies it all the time. He he does right, all right. Of right. Are you asking was- if Mark charges Devo to practice? That's- no, I'm, I'm asking oh. <laughs> if, if, like, the facility, like, if you're, like, kind of recommending it, like, if you have another project to work on, if you're, like, oh, can I use your room? Oh, Mark <laughs> charges, what you, yeah, Mark charges everybody. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I figured. <laughs> so, so I, what I wanted to get to is the parking situation. 
Uh, <laughs> so some friends of mine, I don't know, they're you know they're they're big fans, and they you know it's it's a circle, and it kind of like loops down into the ground yeah. to get in, right? So they were walking down the the trench, and they were like, oh, you know, let's knock on the door. We don't know what's gonna happen. And then Mark burst out of the door and was like, got in their face, and like, you guys stole my parking spot. <laughs> and then they were like, I don't know what to say. And they were like, and he was like get out of there and don't do it again. And he like turned around and closed the door. <laughs> then they walked all the way up the trench. They were just walking through LA during the hot summer. That's day. Funny. So I'm just wondering yeah, well, if, if you've ever had any experience of Mark at his parking spot. <laughs> I just know he's turned into quite a little businessman. Parking is where the money's at. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, Devo could, could be a parking lot. Devo parking that, lot. That, that, that might be, that might be a retirement fund. I like that. <laughs> And then Mark would be happy. He'd always have a spot. Yeah, he's always have a spot. You're yep. talking about that that Mark Mother Hubbard guy? Yeah. <laughs> so Bill and I just saw saw you all play recently at Punk Rock Bowling. I was wondering, actually, before we saw the set, I, I was I was wondering if you were gonna potentially do any of the Jihad Jerry stuff during the show, but I guess that wasn't uh, that wasn't in the cards. Are you ever gonna do anything live with any of that, or is that all just studio? Oh, I would love to do a nice, concise little set. I would like to open for some name acts or something on some level and just do, just come out and just do a full G.I. Jerry set, 30, 40 minutes. I would love that. You used to open for yourselves back in the old day. Why can't you do it now? Why can't you do it now? Next Devo tour. I think, I think Jihad Jerry should open for Devo. We don't want another Devo freeze. I like Josh Frisch could do double duty. He'd play first with G.I. Jerry and then with Devo. Exactly. He can handle it. I've seen him, I've seen him play some, some crazy sets with, with you guys and with different bands. I mean, he, that guy seems to have endless energy. And you can hand out uh, parking vouchers. Start that business up. There you go. No, but he is seriously. He's ready to do it. He's ready to really? do GI Jerry live. <laughs> and so is Steve you Bartek, you know, from Wingo Barta, who played on my last. Uh, I don't know if you watched the video of. I'm going to pay you back. It's great. Back. That Have video is that? incredible. Yeah, I mean, as much as it's cool to see the multimedia element of that, with I'd love to see you do more stuff like that. But I mean, also to bring that on tour would be would be incredible. I know it's not something probably you want to do full time. I know Devo's kind of doing more select shows than doing actual. You're not doing day after day touring, but I mean, even if you did something like you know, like the city Mark city wineries, not, Mark won't do it. Really? Yeah, Mark Mark wouldn't do it. Yeah, Jerry could become full time. City Winery <laughs> might be the best place you could ever play. For Jihad Jerry, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, just yeah. You, can, you can get the bottles in there. Yeah, because it's all about <laughs> wine, too. Yeah. There's a promotion. Yeah, do a seated like show. It. That I would like be great. It. How about a Jihad Jerry dinner the theater? Par- the parking really sucks around there, too. <laughs> How about Jihad Jerry dinner theater with my wine? Yes, that's, exactly. That's yeah, perfect. tasting. You you stop between songs and take people through. Well, now this course is this. You know, you're right. <laughs> write, write, write the wine into the musical. Like it's part. You know, it's like it's like, like uh, Rocky Horror. People throw that champagne glass or whatever. It's like, hey, everybody, drink up. Oh, everybody, buy buy another bottle now. See, that's, we're just like an idea factory here. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> That would be I asked, amazing. I asked Ben Diley from the Lemonheads this question. Have you ever heard of uh, Joey Levine of Crushing Enterprises? Crushing Enterprises? So, yeah. So, he's the guy that wrote a lot of the original, like, bubblegum pop songs in the 60s. Okay. Like, uh, Chewy Chewy, Yummy okay. Yummy. Uh, oh, but he ended sure. up being, okay. like, a jingle writer. Like, one of the best jingle writers of all time. I'm just wondering, like, if he ever, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know how much you've, like, lent that 
your musical muscles to the commercial problem solving thing other than they, you know, you know what's funny production. is they hardly they hardly ever asked they weren't interested so this guy joey levine he ended up using chewy chewy in like a granola bar commercial you know ironically you know it's like he, he wrote all these like softer side of sears and things like that but then they were just like oh just use the song you already wrote it's perfect <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it's perfect so i'm just surprised that you got into the video production and no one asked <laughs> around that. I'm surprised that there's not more licensing of Devo songs too. I mean, like you could use like Be Stiff as a as a Viagra ad, you know, things like that. <laughs> I, I feel like this, there's uh, opportunities. That could be in a, um, I know that could be in an erectile dysfunction commercial. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's. I mean, when that does come up. Like who ah, does who does that? It like, what, does come up, yeah, yeah. Like how does that? What does that look like when those kinds of yeah? You because know, the other thing we don't really ever get into is like how does a band make money if they're not playing shows and you know they don't have necessarily the right record deal that gives them anything. Only one way licensing. You're right. That's it. So so is that like does that come up enough? There there are royalties, well, but it's yeah, not, it's like it's not nothing nothing to brag about. No. Yeah. But so I mean, could is, you are there agents that sell that though? They're like, hey, I'm trying to get more Devo songs into, you know, whatever. <laughs> no, nobody's working. I mean, there are people like music supervisors and it's onerous. They want fifty percent. Mm. Yeah. It isn't like there's an agent getting ten percent for working your catalog. No, they want fifty percent of the licensing deal. Got it. Yeah. So, so it's like you know, it's got to be worth it. Well, are you <laughs> able to make a living off Devo at this point, or no? No, not even like to be like like a middle class living. I suppose if I lived in Ohio, Akron. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe there's enough royalties for. For that, that's kind of sad. Like even Devo can't make a living off of. Yeah, that's that. a that's a statement on the on how we value the arts and and well, musicians. It's a statement. It's a statement that's saying that our podcast makes sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we sure as hell ain't gonna make a living off this. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people just assume. Depends well, what you mean must... by make sense, Bill. <laughs> Of course they do. Of right? course they assume, they do. of course, Devo makes a living off their music, and why are they on this show? And it's like, well, wake up. People like this is the real world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Mark makes all his money from composing. Sure. And he doesn't have to pay 50% of that out. No. Right. He owns that stuff. And he, he makes the deal in advance. He doesn't have, uh, you know, the same kind a of. A lot thing. of that's work for hire. Uh, sometimes he gets a piece of the publishing. Right. 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 But that, so took, him, it, that took him years to build up, too. That wasn't overnight. Right. No. It, he. He just dove into it and just went at it 24-7. So, so Jerry, if it, if it was up to you, would you be playing more frequently with Devo? Is that like is of that course. something that – it sounds Devo like a bone of contention been, a little bit. Devo could have been massive. I mean, you, you wouldn't believe the lucrative offers we get year after year. Right. I mean, now you have – you probably have four generations of audiences. It right? is kind of like the new wave Grateful Dead, yeah. Right. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, you and you do, you know, you do the devotional every year, right? Like you, you, you go out for that, and and, well, uh, you know, and somebody's got. I feel sorry for those people. If nobody from Devo shows up, and <laughs> and I'm the one. I'm the one who cares. Do you get? Do you ever get? Do you get sick of talking about Devo, or is it something that you're always you're always game for? Oh, you know, uh, I, yeah. I mean, it, it's no effort. You know, that's what's interesting about music. And again, it's like wine. You, could, you know, you, you crack open a bottle and you 
drink it, and then you have another bottle of that same wine three years later, and it's completely different. And, and your experience of it's completely different because you're different three years later. So, uh, you know, these songs don't get old to me. It's, it's like, if it's good, it's good. It, you, you know, yeah, I mean, I agree Picasso with that. used to show his paintings uh, more than once. You know, he would show it 50 years later. Uh, I, I see the songs the same way. Well, so then in that way, it's not like wine because they, they, no one's going to be like, oh, yeah, don't see Devo on this tour. They peaked with their last tour. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure that, I'm sure a lot it was of a really bad that. summer. <laughs> no, I don't think you got the right analogy, Dave, because like the, si- the songs came from back then and it's a good vintage. And if they wrote new songs and they put a crappy record now, it's like, don't drink that one. It's not the tour, <laughs> you know? Could be. But if it's coming from the same vineyard, it's probably going to be all right. Yeah. <laughs> what are your favorite myths about you that aren't true? Yeah, me personally or Devo? Either. Yeah. Well, with Devo, everybody, again, like you brought up, they assume that we're like multi-millionaires from Devo, that Devo's slayed and scored, you know, and that's, it's a myth. And they think that we just formed out of thin air overnight and went on Saturday Night Live, like with no work was put into it. I was going to make some up. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like these, these are believable. Uh, let me know what you think. You're fluent in Esperanto. I, I, I would believe that. I would believe that. I would definitely believe that. That should be Bevo's language, second language. <laughs> you once stole the speaker system from an Arby's drive-in and made it into musical instruments. <laughs> you know, that sounds like Bob Mothersbaugh would have done that. <laughs> and then uh, Lego wanted to make a Devo Lego kit, but you said minifig scale where the characters are wider than tall was unacceptable Boy, that's <laughs> that's complicated i like this <laughs> i just feel like that's appropriate i don't know so i have a real <laughs> myth i have a real myth that i want you to like pick apart i just heard this today so from what i understand you played at cbgb's and the dead boys were in the audience and they jumped up on stage grabbed your instruments and started their set with what's with the fucking flower pots is any of that true? <laughs> uh, well, we didn't have uh, the red hats at that point, but they did do the rest of it, and they a pantsed Mark. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember which member did it, or is it, it did it take a team effort? <laughs> it was. Uh, it was. Um, was it Cheetah Chrome? <laughs> that definitely sounds like a Cheetah Chrome thing to me. <laughs> is he the one with the red hair? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, with the with yeah. the choker dog collar. Yeah, he <laughs> yeah he yanked Mark's pants down around his ankles. <laughs> was this before you finished that, playing? Yeah, was, uh, was it, what, what, what part of the set was it that this happened? Uncontrollable urge. <laughs> <laughs> That's really appropriate. <laughs> you mean you mean you mean the Disney hit Uncontrollable Urge? <laughs> yeah. See, Dave, I asked the music question. Thank you, you did. Dave. You never asked music questions. Thank you, Dave the Spass. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Jerry, I know um, we've, we've probably taken up way too much of your time already, um, but wanted to ask if there, you know, you do a lot of interviews and you talk about, you know, you talk about music a lot and you talk about, you know, your, your history. Are there, is there a question that people don't ask you that you, you, would, you would love to, to talk about? <laughs> um. I think they've asked me everything. <laughs> Did they ask you a lot of questions about junk food? Because we got lots of that. Yeah. <laughs> and it seems like you'd get positive notes on it. 
No, I just, when you said that, I just said, God, they've, you know, of course they ask about sex. They ask about drugs. They ask about, yeah, everything. We never ask about those. No. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I got a question. My, my, my roommate at school was a huge uh, Devo fan. His name was Chuck. Do you know him? <laughs> Sometimes they do. There, there's, a, there, there's a blonde Chuck. fan named April. And if you say that, they absolutely know who April is. <laughs> well, Chuck was my best friend. Oh, okay. <laughs> who'd have known? <laughs> there you go. You always thought he was full of shit, Charlie. I thought he, I thought he was full of shit. I thought he was good. <laughs> People can go to your website. It's GeraldVCasale.com. I know you have the, the Jihad Jerry going to pay you back seven inch right now, right? That's available. Yeah. What else can they buy? Wine. No, wine's separate. Uh, wine is separate. That's the 50by50.com. But they could buy it. Not on, G- oh, yeah. not on, not on Gerald not on Gerald. Casale. No, I know, I know. I'm just saying. We're, <laughs> so we're give the address too. for that, Dave. I should have a link. <laughs> We have links in our we have links in our description, so we, yeah, we can definitely put that in. It's all letters. The fifty by fifty dot com. That's it, kids. The gig is up. The cops are here, and your mom is calling jails, hospitals, and all your friends' houses, wondering where you've been. Tune in next week for another fascinating, mesmerizing, and absolutely unmissable episode. And be sure to get on the list and follow the boys on social media at Killed by Desk. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon. And if you enjoyed this conversation, there's tons more where this came from. For only $5 a month, you can get full episodes with each of our guests for a total of five episodes per month. Want to help us out with some gas money and to get us to the next show? We have merch and more at KilledByDesk.com.